Right now we're going to talk about the history and importance of the Six-Day War, which took place in June of 1967. When Israel took over the West Bank, Gaza, the Golan Heights, and the Sinai Peninsula. First we talk with Leah Terachansky, an Israeli Jewish woman, a filmmaker who grew up in the settlements in an Orthodox family, who helps us contextualize what the soldiers were doing in that war, why change international relations, most of all what it's done to change Israel and the Palestinians and their lives. Then we talk with Ali Zageb. Ali has been coming on the show since 1993, talking about Israel and Palestine and the Arab world. He was living in Palestine when the Six-Day War broke out, and we'll bring a first-person perspective on this conversation that I'm sure you will enjoy. All this coming up, and please send us your thoughts, comments, and questions about what you heard in today's program to talk at steinershow.org, or tweet me at Mark Steiner, or comment on our Facebook page. Stay with us for two intriguing interviews. As we look at this anniversary of the Six-Day War that took place in 1967, 50 years ago, we have a series of conversations. We're about to talk with Leah Terachansky, who's a journalist, a filmmaker, former settler. Uh, as she just told me before we went on the air that uh, her films have to do with collective denial. <laughs> and we'll talk more about that. And Leah, welcome. Good to have you back here on the Mark Steiner Show. It's been a long time. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. So it's interesting. I'm really interested in your perspective on this. I mean, this war was 50 years ago. You're a woman of 32, a filmmaker, deep thinker, born in Israeli. And so you grew up with both the myth and reality of this war that came way before your time. So how, how did you grow up thinking about the war? How, did you, how was this war presented to you as a young woman growing up in Israel? Well, I mean, the Six-Day War for me is very different than what I imagine it's like for you and, and a lot of folks um, of your generation because I grew up uh, in a settlement, and the Six-Day War was the street name, you know. It was the street name of one of the main streets in the settlement. Mm. Um, the heroes of that war were, you know, on uh, the names of buildings. And so for me, it was something that happened so, so long ago. Um, you know, when you're a kid, everything seems like it was ancient history. And... I had no conceptual understanding of it whatsoever. It was just this thing that happened. It was this amazing victory. You know, we also grew up in Israel with the um, mythology uh, that is gr drilled into us in the Israeli education system that we are this brave, moral, victorious army that has won all of its wars. And it wasn't until I became a journalist that I realized that since 1967, we have actually not won a single war. Um, and that's incredibly relevant. Um, I can get back to that later. But also that the only reason we won the 67 war is because we, the government of Israel realigned its alliance uh, from France to the United States. And the United States, shortly before the war, armed and equipped the Israeli army so that it could, in six days, triple its territory. Um, but, you know, I was a direct benefactor of the Six-Day six War, precisely because I grew up in a settlement in the middle of the occupied territory. Um, and I grew up in a place that was 
at the same time on the front line of the Zionist colonial project, but at the same time completely oblivious to that. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't even call the West Bank occupied territory. Now, thanks to some uh, really effective activism and good journalism, those territories are referred to as the occupied territories, uh, even in, in Israeli media. But I grew up in, in, in uh, what we could basically just consider some rural areas of Israel. The map that I was taught in the Israeli education system is a map that has no boundaries between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, the Gaza uh, Strip and the West Bank were just natural parts of the country where I grew up. And so I grew up completely oblivious to the fact that these territories were conquered, occupied, and were being held by a military regime at the expense of millions of Palestinians. That's interesting. I mean, so uh, how we grow up and the kind of mythology I think countries give to its young about who we are as a people, same thing happens here in America, but in a different way, um, it can be jarring if you begin to look beneath it. I mean, if you look at, at that war 50 years ago, I mean, it was what it was shown to the world, the Six-Day War, was the, the Jewish David inflicting a defeat on the Arab Goliath. Um, that's right, and that's exactly the mythology of the 48th War. Exactly, and that you, that you talked about in your film. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, and and then you had and you had Levi Eshkol, who was prime minister then, saying the existence of Israel, the Israeli state, hung by a thread, but the hopes of Arab leaders to annihilate Israel were dashed, um, and that so this was this was the mythology of the moment, um, and. And as I said to you before we went on the air, I remember in 1967 we were all caught up in that mythology. Um, I was living in Washington. I was part of the Washington Free Press. I had helped start Liberation News Service. The, the Six-Day War began, and we were all sitting on the steps, many of the, the, the Jewish people who worked in these two institutions, sitting on the steps, cheering every, every move uh, the Israelis made, every victory they took, taking Jerusalem, going into Egypt, going through the West Bank, taking the Golden Heights, all of that, and then... Even going that must the, have been very exciting. It was because you, 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 you know, you, you, we grew up with the same mythology of the David against the Goliath. But don't forget that the soldiers who fought that war uh, were the, the the direct children of Holocaust survivors, of Holocaust refugees, of World War II veterans, of World War II uh, refugees. These were children that were growing up to very different parents than the kind of parents I grew up with. My parents, as do I, have only a conceptual understanding of the Holocaust, um, obviously inundated with intense media and, and, uh, and memories created through our, uh, you know, intergenerational trauma. But we didn't live the Holocaust, and we were not the direct children of Holocaust survivors. So the, the children that were fighting in 67 were growing up in a Israel that was bombarding its citizens with um, this, you know, fight or die narrative. And I have to say that if you listen to the messages coming out of the Arab world at the time, they were not, you know, they were not inventing things. Um, Africa at that time was decolonizing. The, uh, the 
language of Nasserism was vehemently anti-Israeli and anti-imperial. And the, the, the messages sent towards Israel from the surrounding Arab countries were not welcoming messages. But they were definitely manipulated and used in order to create this army that fought in 67. So I'm sure that they were still living with that fear that if they don't win this war, there will be another Holocaust. I think that's, I'm really glad you, you set that up that way. Because I think that that's something that people forget. That it was, it was, it was the people who grew up with parents who had survived the Holocaust, who had escaped Europe, not allowed to come to the United States, not allowed to go anywhere else but to Israel, to Palestine at the moment. Um, and and th- that's a different kind of visceral intellectual process that pushes people. Um, so so there's you can there's, so there's a myth and reality here that that kind of dialectically interplay with one another. The fear, sure, but that doesn't right? excuse. I mean, I absolutely I think that's very important. But you, the place where you lose me is where immediately after occupying the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, the government basically looks at all of these territories that they conquered, where millions of Palestinians that they were themselves expelled in 1948 were living, and basically looked at it from the point of view of an ethnocratic regime and thought to themselves, well, we want the territories, but we don't want the people. So what can we do? And that's when they reclassify these territories, not occupied, but held as territories. And that one linguistic change ends up justifying everything that has happened since, because the Israeli government and the Israeli military basically told themselves, well, we are now, we have held territories, which means we are not obliged to follow the international law when it comes to occupation. And so 50 years later, we're still holding millions of Palestinians under uh, military occupation. So, yes, in 67, the children that fought that war, um, I can definitely have a lot of sympathy for the kind of um, mentality with which they went into that war. But the leadership of Israel manipulated that for the benefit of um, tripling this uh, territory and essentially giving the keys to the country over to the colonialists. Let's explore that last sentence. That last thought, giving the keys of the country over to the colonialists. You're talking about people colonizing the West Bank and Gaza and taking over the Golan Heights. Yes, and of course, I mean, like there was an actual conversation going on in the Israeli leadership about what to do, right? And they were very aware that international law, especially the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949, is crystal clear when it comes to military occupation. So they knew what they were facing if they just continued to hold on to the territories but not give citizenship to the people who live there. Um, because the people who live there, as I said, were the, the Palestinian refugees expelled from their homes and fled their homes in 48, 1948, um, as well as, of course, Palestinians and Syrians. Who, uh, whose land they simply just conquered in 67. And they understood that if they give these people citizenship, the demographic balance in Israel would be broken and it, Jews will no longer be the majority. And then Zionism doesn't make any more sense because the, the, the greatest, I think, mistake or the greatest um, 
reason for why there is still a Palestinian-Israeli conflict is because the government of Israel and Zionism in general does not define what it means by Jewish and democratic state. And inside of that ambiguity lives, you know, millions of people, because that ambiguity means that we don't, you know, it, the decisions about who is a citizen, who is not a citizen, who is a permanent resident, resident, and who is the subject of the military, how you manipulate people and territory, all those decisions go into these ambiguities between this ethnocratic regime, which Israel has become, which is basically trying to dominate another ethnicity uh, what, uh, underneath the, this, this uh, overall arching dominant force that calls itself the Jewish and democratic state. But as the government of Israel never had a constitution, never defined its own borders, does not define what a Jewish person is, and does not define what it means by a democracy, the ambiguity has left you know millions of people uh, in a state of permanent limbo for 50 years. And the reason for that limbo, the only reason for that limbo, is that those people are now born Jewish. And so there's 50 years of occupation after the 67 war. These 50 years of occupation, I mean, let's say for those who would argue that the, the people who love the, 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 the world of Zionism and, and consider themselves Zionists and believe they have the right and should have the right to live in, in, in Israel, the war itself is destroy, destroying that very ideal. The occupation is kind of eating it, I think, eating Israel and the Jewish people in, as in general from the inside out. It's decaying it by its very occupation. That's the thing that, you know, that I think that we, people don't explore enough what it has done. Um, the idea of feeling you're coming out of a great humanity to bring the world some light and what we've gotten is darkness. Sure. I mean, you could also argue that in the very first years of the state, right? I mean, people talk about how when two-thirds of the Palestinian people uh, were found themselves outside the borders of Palestine in, in 1949, that, you know, well, it's a byproduct of war. Every war has refugees. What can you do? Okay. But then immediately after the state is created, they legislate that those people cannot return. The government legislates that their properties and land now belong to the state and simply reallocates all that wealth to uh, Jewish immigrants coming from Europe and elsewhere, uh, and of course, North Africa and the Middle East, and basically uh, enshrines in law that Israel is a state into which only Jewish people can become citizens. So I would argue that that um, direction that is eating at the humanist core of Judaism began then when, when for the first time in 2,000 years, the Jewish people have their own nation, have their own government, have their own sovereignty and independence. And the first thing that they do is not decide who, uh, that, that they're going to have a country of inclusion, that we're going to have a country of, uh, that rejects all the principles of fascism and ethnocracy that, and, and supremacy that came from Europe. No, I think what was devastating and is still devastating to Judaism as a whole, because, of course, Zionism pretends to speak on behalf of Judaism as a whole. Um, 
is that we ended up legislating the, the kind of regime that could have only been produced by people that came from fascistic Europe. And 67 is yet another manifestation of that, that instead of thinking about these people who have now been displaced twice, um, even in terms of militaristic you know, thinking, you know, forget humanism, forget humanitarianism. If I was the general in charge of these territories, and I, I in fact interviewed the, the head of COGAT, the Israeli army uh, department that is in charge of the civilian population under the occupation, he was in charge of that for the first decade almost. And I, I was asking him, like, you know, what were you thinking? You know, you, you, you have on your hands now millions of people who are only going to resent you because you displaced them twice, and now you're holding them under martial law. And he was basically saying, well, look, what did you want me to do? I was just a soldier following orders, right? And that's the kind of response that you hear constantly um, coming out of Israeli leaders. Is, well, what can you do if I didn't do that? You know, I would be either breaking rank or I would be uh, sending this whole ethnocratic project into disarray. So this idea that of a theocracy, this very, very idea that the state of Israel is a Jewish country, even though half of the people under its control are not Jewish, uh, that idea stems to 1948. And 67 simply cemented that for me. So I think it's an important war, but I think it's not even the I don't even think it's the fundamental change, because if you look at it in pure numbers, yes, today the military occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip is holding millions of Palestinians stateless, without basic rights and um, without the ability uh, to, to have sovereignty over their own lives. But the Palestinians who were not expelled, who live inside of Israel, are legislated second-class citizens. There's more than 50 laws that discriminate against them, in plain language or in practice, um, because they are not Jewish. And just recently, the Arabic language was actually re declassified as an official language of Israel-Palestine. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? The, 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 the European Jewry moved into the Middle East, into Palestine, had resurrected a language that has been basically dormant for 2,000 years, uh, the language of Hebrew, as is spoken today, is only about a hundred years old, right. and has now, has a, and has has now linguistically expelled the indigenous language of the area. I mean, it's it's absolute insanity, and the only way to understand it is if you put on the glasses of ethnocracy, and those were the glasses with which Levi Eshkol was looking at the occupied territory. As, one of the things that popped in my head as you were speaking is that. <clears throat> There are two ways to look at this. One is this 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, which is what many people in the press are <clears throat> are focusing on, and the history of that, as opposed to focusing on the 50th year of the occupation, which is really what we should be talking about, and what that occupation is doing, and what it's done. <clears throat> I mean, we had these debates in the show a lot about a two-state solution, I mean, quite frankly, I think the days of a two-state solution are done. Over. There's no way they can happen. And to me, that's what this occupation means. That this is there. It, it's it's there. It, there's there's literally no way out, other than one state. I don't 
don't know about that. I mean, I'm not a two-state solution person, but, I mean, if history has taught us anything, is that everything can change overnight. It's true. So, I mean, so, 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 what, so where do you, I mean, what do you think would, would be this, 50, when you reflect on this 50th anniversary of the war, the 50 years of occupation, then what could, what, where do you see the future that you've been covering and thinking about living through your whole life? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm actually working right now on a big project uh, trying to design with uh, Palestinian and Israeli architects, municipal planners, um, uh, engineers and economists and educators, um, that future. We're calling the project 1948-2048. And we're basically taking into the uh, assumption that the conflict has ended and what does it look like, this territory between the river and the sea, in 1948, if you were to decolonize it? And I use the term decolonization in the way that uh, it was originally used by um, Franz Fanon and the way that I'm witnessing currently is being used in Canada. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Canada is currently going through a historic process of decolonization as a result of uh, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that forced the settler white European population to deal with the fact that there was a mass genocide here. And, and the, the most um, recent uh, manifestation of that genocide against the indigenous people was the theft of tens of thousands of indigenous children and their re-education through residential schools into a European style of living the forbidding of their language, the forbidding of their cultures, and so on. Now Canada is, is, is coming to terms with that history through an official process. And we're witnessing the more ephemeral elements of it come into play. And that's what fascinates me, watching how the uh, Toronto District School Board is now doing land recognitions every morning, where you know dozens of schools in the biggest city in the country are every morning starting the school day by saying we recognize we are on stolen indigenous land. The name of the people that lived here is the uh, is the Mississauga of Credit Lake, and we you know we are here as settlers. You know, and I think huh. about those things. Every university is going through a process of uh, indigenization and decolonization. Um, the legal system, you know, legal students are being re-educated to also incorporate indigenous forms of justice and law. Um, you know, this process that is taking place in this enormous country and will take decades to implement. That's how I think about the future of Israel-Palestine. I don't know if the official shot that will be fired, that will announce the end of the conflict, will be in the form of a one-state or a two-state solution. I don't know, because I know that today we are dealing with a Palestine in which the majority of the uh, resistance and the majority of the nonviolent um, leaders have been assassinated, imprisoned, or exiled by the state of Israel. So who is going to lead the Palestinian people into uh, some kind of resolution is a big question mark. The Palestinian Authority is led by essentially a dictator who announced himself to be the, the, the president of Palestine, even though nobody elected him. Right. And the Gaza Strip is ruled by Hamas, which, you know, we could have an entire show just to talk about them. Um, so I am very worried for the Palestinian people, because in these negotiations, as the Palestine Papers revealed, uh, 
the balance of forces is completely off. And when there was that transitional moment in South Africa and apartheid officially ended there, um, one of the big concessions of the ANC was not to participate in the economic renegotiation talks, which essentially meant that all of the real power, the money, the land, everything, remained in white hands. And when I went to South Africa to see for myself what it's like, I saw that 13% of South Africa, which is white, uh, controls more than 65% of the economy. Most white people still live in white-only communities. Most, uh, almost all of the poor and starving are still black. And God help us if we end up like South Africa. So that moment uh, when it all supposedly ends, to me, is much less important than the processes of decades-long decolonization that are going to have to take place for the Israeli people to become actually indigenized, for the Israeli people to become members of the Middle East, to learn the language of the Middle East, to understand the history of the Middle East, to understand conceptually, at least, what colonialism means and what it has meant for Palestinian people. And I think, honestly, we spend so much time in the diaspora talking about one state or two states. And the, the truth is that it is already a one state. Between the river and the sea, there is only one government, one army, one ruler. Uh, any day now, the Israeli government is going to announce that they are officially annexing the West Bank. They're almost completely annexed East Jerusalem, with the exception of Al-Aqsa, which is coming any day now. And Assisi of Egypt has given every indication that he intends to take on the uh, humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip. So Gaza will be basically handed over to uh, the military government of Egypt, and I imagine they will not treat the, the Gazan people any better. So any day now, this one state of official uh, two-tiered, three-tiered legal system will be announced. And what then? That is much, much, much less important than what processes we set into motion to decolonize Israel-Palestine, than whether we end up with endless failed negotiations like we have in the last 20 years, or we end up conceding to this annexation. It's really refreshing to hear your thoughts, um, because there's an oversimplification of this conversation in most places which you do not let yourself fall into. You can't come up with ideas about where we're going and use the established simple solutions and arguments that people want to make in this little narrow box. You have to go beyond that, which is what you're doing. I think so, and it's not me. It's indigenous people. I'm just listening. Exactly. Exactly. Leah, this is the just beginning of many conversations we have over the coming year. Um, I really do enjoy your mind, your commitment to justice, uh, your your consciousness as I've watched it grow over these years of knowing you and hearing our, having our conversations. And I, I look forward to the next films coming out and uh, what else comes what comes next for Leah Tarachansky. This has been a very moving and interesting conversation. I, I thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's very kind of you to invite me.